This is Authorised Access, a podcast from Microsoft Australia and New Zealand about the cybersecurity challenges facing businesses today. On the show, you'll hear from leaders in cybersecurity from Microsoft and beyond as we explore high-level strategies to help confront risk in your organisation. We are living today in a multi-cloud, multi-platform, multi-environment world. It is more critical than ever that we keep our business safe. I'm Daniel Goffredo. I'm Jess Dodson. And I'm Kenny Singh. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Authorised Access. Today's episode is one not to miss. And if I had to describe our theme for today, it would be the multifaceted leader. Vanessa Van Beek is a trailblazer in cybersecurity, someone who resonates with innovation, resilience, and transformative leadership. She's had a long career working in organizations like Telstra, DXC, NBN, Kinetic IT, and now works as the cybersecurity executive at Avenard. Vanessa, or V for short, has a diverse background spanning law, business, and psychology. She has carved a remarkable path in the world of cybersecurity. I was incredibly lucky to have the opportunity to meet V in person at the Women in Security Awards back in October. Welcome, V, to the show. Hey, thank you very much. And also, Jess, hey, congratulations on your award at the Women in Security Awards. It was just amazing to see you. You've been such a great advocate and uh, it was wonderful to celebrate with you on the night. Thank you so much. It was an amazing night. It was beautiful to see so many awesome women being celebrated and in such a glorious venue. It was so pretty. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So incredibly inspiring. As were you um, when you got up and spoke and you were talking about the women when you were presenting your award. It was fabulous. Thank you. So, Dan, have you got some questions for V today? Yes. Well, I think just echoing what Jess said, it's amazing to see some of these events emerging and and the support behind it, just to build up the community of amazing female cybersecurity leaders and was very happy to see a few Microsoft people win awards during that night. And looking at this particular show and where we wanted to start was we wanted to actually get to know you a little bit more and introduce you to our audience. And as Jess said, you have an incredibly impressive history in cybersecurity And I want to start with, well, what inspired you to to have a career in tech? It's a really interesting start for me in a career in technology. I graduated at the time when the industries that were really booming were telecommunications and the tech industry. Other industries were slowing down. There was a bit of recession going on. It was before the GST was coming in. And the adoption of the internet and mobile technologies were really booming. So I got really inspired by the idea of being part of that digital revolution. And I guess it's been that digital revolution that's kind of been the thing that has guided me through my career. And I've just followed the laws of um, momentum and where there's been open doors, followed them into opportunities. So I started my career with Telstra. The industry in telecommunications was just deregulating at the time. And I worked in the, the wholesale division of Telstra as it deregulated, which was really interesting. And the thing about a law degree is that it's really about critical thinking and it, you really build great regulatory and compliance skills. So I, I used those skills initially with a lot of new starters um, in the telecommunications market as it deregulated. And it wasn't long before I realised I actually really loved working with customers. And I then 
went about getting an MBA to work closer with customers with their strategic planning. As I started working closer with customers, I decided I would actually broaden my skills and get more broad business-based skills. And an MBA was really great just from the idea of strategy, understanding current state and then working with customers to design a bit of a target state and then work with them. As you can imagine in telecommunications, there's a lot of legacy. So all of the work that we were doing was really taking customers, upgrading data networks to a higher speed to enable more and more applications on the internet and things like that for their organisations to go digital. Following that, I I was managing fairly large teams and it's the people factor, right, in managing large teams and people are different every day. So I realised I needed stronger skills around managing change and influencing change in large groups. So I I then undertook some study in psychology to really understand more about human behaviour, what motivates us, how do we implement change at scale and how do we inspire people on that journey. And so a lot of the work that I did in my study was around organisational psychology, which was really a great framework for some of the work I did both at Telstra and also in cyber later in my career. And was there a defining moment, would you say, when you pivoted to cybersecurity or you chose that cybersecurity was going to be your direction going forward? To be honest, I stumbled into cyber. I was actually working in Telstra. I was head of delivery for enterprise and government, looking after customers in Western Australia, South Australia and Northern Territory. And I worked through the COVID pandemic, managing delivery operations for those three states. And that meant managing and planning for major incidents, responding to incidents associated with bushfires, cyclones, flood damage, and leading major incident response. During that time around 2020, Telstra had three major national network outages and these outages we needed to determine impact, we needed to really lead communications and we needed to do a lot of root cause analysis around the changes that we were doing, how they were being rolled out and also put in place more comprehensive test plans around some of those sorts of things. So I actually developed really good incident management skills, leading large incidents and managing teams of people to restore services, but also to lead the communications with Telstra. And in a sense, working in cyber is quite similar because cyber is just like another kind of disaster, like a bushfire, right? You need to maintain the same kind of composure in an emerging and fast-paced environment. And in both kinds of environments, there is a playbook to follow. There's a set of guidelines around how you respond, but there's also a lot of leadership, adaptive leadership that happens in the moment. Both managing major incidents and cyber, there's a great deal to do around preparation. When something happens, there's mitigation and response, and then there's a a period of recovery. And both environments have root cause analysis as being something really important as to why something happened, why was there a flood, was it mechanical failure, or was it that the equipment was, you know, had a cyber attack. The difference in cyber, I think, is that it's a deliberate attack. So the psychology behind it is, is quite different and you're dealing with adversaries or cyber criminals. And I think that's very different when you're looking at a major incident, which is a bushfire or a flood. It's a cause of nature. And I think we all accept not everything can be controlled. But there's a desire in this field of cyber that perhaps if we lead with great tech and great processes and arm our people, that we can actually defend and protect more than we're currently doing. So, yeah, I was leading major incident response coming out of COVID 
And someone approached me, would I join their operation to run their security operations, their platform and architecture team, and lead a, a large transformation within a, uh, a large IT company called Kinetic IT. And I was ready for a challenge. Uh, coming back from COVID, I, I really wanted to lead a team. I wanted to be close to people. And I really wanted to form really strong connections with those people around the work that we were doing. And all of those sorts of things I could do with cyber, which is an amazing opportunity. In that kind of vein, do you think we are creating enough opportunities as organisations to encourage students to both pursue a career in cyber, but also for those people who may feel that they're looking to shift from their current career into cyber? Because I know that having that different mindset, like you said, coming from law and coming from psychology, they benefit us in cyber. So are we doing enough? Yeah, I think there's a couple of entry points for moving into cyber. There's the graduates coming out of TAFE colleges and university, but there's also awesome talent that is grafting across into cyber from other backgrounds. I was one of those. And there's great skills in people with solid IT skills. There's great skills in people who've worked in intelligence, policing and defence also to graft across into cyber. The link for me is around mentoring. I think there's really great skills out there and the role of the cyber security community is actually to mentor new entrants into the field. And it's through mentoring that we build that bridge and we create the workforce of the future. I am really grateful for a number of mentors who really spent a great deal of time with me explaining things to me, whiteboarding things with me and being really generous with me. It's through combining the power of relationships, knowledge and resources that we tap into the cyber community and and we grow it. So I think it's incumbent on everyone who works in this field to see what can we do, not only with new entrants from TAFE and university, but also new entrants of people grafting across into cyber to demystify what this work is and to break down the fear of just getting started in this industry. Because the amazing thing about once you're in this industry is that the sense of purpose around the work pulls it out of you. This is an incredible industry. It's one that I've really loved being a part of during the day. And then in the evenings, I've loved learning and doing certifications and listening to podcasts and keeping up with the news and preparing for conferences. There's something about this work that doesn't fit the standard nine to five because of that sense of purpose. It's not just a nine to five job. It's something I think that kind of starts beating in your veins that you just want to know more and more about this field. It's so incredibly interesting. So look, generally, security operations is a very high stress, very high turnover environment. And obviously, we, you've had a lot of experience managing security operation centers and everything else that goes with it. So do you have learnings, perhaps tips and tricks that you've adapted, you've developed over the years on how you dealt with these high stress environments? I think the most important thing is to have really great documentation and protocols in place so that when things do go wrong, you have a guide and you follow that guide until the adrenaline stops, you settle the ball, and then you can actually use your rational brain to take over. Because in the first few hours of an incident, you really need to go back to what are those clear procedures? What are those clear protocols? You need to really get together with a team, work out communications, work out who's going to lead it and form a team that's going to take direction and work out what the cadence of communications is, whether it's hourly, 
three hourly or six hourly so that there's a very clear set of communications and protocols around how the investigation is going to be led. The other thing I think is really important is making sure that we manage stress and we're really aware of stress in the environments that we lead. And in teams that I've led, I've done a lot of work with the teams so they understand what stress looks like and feels like. And given teams language around, are you in the green zone or the red zone? And if you're in the red zone, you won't be doing your best work because the effect of cortisol on the brain and things like that. So really helping individuals understand what takes their brain to the red zone and how do we get them back to the green zone in the middle of a crisis so they can still do work in a space where they can think clearly, where we can support them in their work and we can guide them through the work that we do. So really being very aware of how stress affects the brain, how it affects the body, encouraging people to take breaks as they need and ensuring that people are really supported in the stressful environment that we are in. The other thing that I think is really important around leading through these types of things is using the technology as best we can to help individuals. So utilising technology to streamline processes, to automate, to really help people do great work because it's the combination between great tech and that overlay of human intelligence that I think is really important. And I've seen some organisations implement sim environments and say, oh, we actually don't want to go all the way to put in place automated response capabilities. But the impact of that is it puts so much more load back onto a team around lean communications, ringing and things like that. Whereas if we can really enable the tools to do what they're designed to do, we take an enormous load off people and we can actually respond much faster. So I think it's the combination between really clear procedures and protocols, really keeping the team well aware of how stress is impacting them and then really using the tech for all that it's set up to do with automated response. AI also poses just huge opportunities for us as we redesign how work can be done, particularly in security operations. So how do you feel something like automation can be used to decrease the level of stress and decrease the level of noise in security operation centers? Absolutely. Automation is part of the pathway out of the current crisis I think we're in at the moment. We have to use the very best capabilities of the technology and what's available, be it through the security orchestration and automated response and also through AI. The fact of the matter is the adversaries are starting to use automation in the way that they distribute malware and phishing campaigns, all of those sorts of things. So it's kind of like an arms race within cyber. So we can't kind of half step into this technology because the result of that is the impact it has on our people when the incident volumes escalate and that has a really big impact on the unpredictable nature of the volumes of work that our people are managing. The more we can use the power of technology combined with human intelligence to guide that technology, shape that technology, think about the use cases required for the technology, the more powerful we are. So it's that combination of the incredible power of the tech stack and the brilliance of our people's minds, those two working together with disciplined operational procedures that really delivers and helps us to protect and respond to escalating threats in Australia and throughout the world. V, you've covered off a lot around preparing and managing and and looking after stress 
I'm going to talk about where we've all had those times where the best laid plans even still have situations where we need to maintain our resilience and we're in a really high pressure situation. It could be just because we're entering uncharted territory. And I think our audience probably has some of those examples, which maybe sit a bit longer in our memories. But what are some of the coping mechanisms? You made mention to the red and the green zone. So when you are in that red zone and your team's in that red zone and it feels like a snowball, what is some of the advice you could give around that and how to manage? So the first thing I think which is really important in a security operations team is actually that the team feels like they're supported by the team. And there's incredible protective value of really building that team sense so that people don't feel alone in this work. For the operation that I was running, we ran around the clock 24-7. So there would be a team during the day and then a team would come in at night to take over. And sometimes there was only one or two people working that night shift What's really important is that night shift feels supported by the rest of the team and they can actually reach out to others as they need to if something happens and others can come and then start to swarm to actually give them the support that's required. Now, in order to create a psychologically safe place for people to ask for help, for people to make mistakes, call them out early so that others can help them fix them and respond to them quickly so they don't get bigger, you need to do a lot of groundwork with the team. So this is a really interesting field because the people drawn to cyber are very bright. There's some very brilliant minds. Many of them are quite introverted. Many of them are neurodivergent. So you have to actually think about how we create that safe place. The things that I found worked was actually changing the model a little bit, changing it away from running standard meetings where the extroverted dominant speakers had most of the the say in the meeting to actually doing more of a facilitated process where we would actually allow turn taking in the meeting so that we got to hear everyone's voice. And then the team listened to each other and decided what was the best pathway out of the situation that we were in. Some of the things that I did with the team was I'm really inspired by Aboriginal culture. I'm inspired by the way they share about their people and their place. And they do that three or four times before they actually conduct business. So what I did with my team was I said, we're going to share one photo of our people and one photo of our place. And your people could be your tribe. They're the people that cheer for you. It could be your sporting team. It could be the team that you hang out and go to nightclubs with on the weekend. It could be your family. It could be whatever shape that tribe represents. They're your people. We want to know who your people are who are supporting you. And we want to know your place. And that might be, for some people, the place they live. It might be the place they go to when they're stressed. It might be the outdoors environment. So we're really looking at both of those things. And by sharing those stories of people in place, what I found was this connective tissue between the team. And we could then start to do really great work. I'm also a huge fan of using Lego to solve problems. So I started bringing in my Lego box. I've got two adult children and the process of raising two children, I ended up with so much Lego, probably about 50 kilos of Lego. So I brought my Lego into the office and then I started experimenting with Lego Series Play through some open source models that I found. And 
I would bring the team in and ask them to build a tower and then explain the tower. I would bring them in and we would have sessions where people would share about their tower and all of a sudden we would find out stories about their mental health journey, about their journey to discover different aspects of their sexuality. We would discover what kind of environment they need to work well. We would discover people had light sensitivity or people needed a quiet work environment and then we started to design the work around the needs of the people so that we knew that some people needed a quiet environment to do great work. Others needed to be in a room with a whiteboard and needed to think and talk to kind of resolve problems. The most important thing in actually building a team that can do really brilliant work is in the forming of the team and in building a really safe environment where they can rely on each other. Once you've done that work, when an incident happens, the team has this this resilience, this muscle that they can then call on and they can then ask for help. You know more about what their strengths are and you also know where their weaknesses are and you can get them to call out their weaknesses so they can actually say, I'm actually not very strong in this particular area of, of forensics or analysis. And you can actually then pair them up So that was the work I did with the team, which was really around understanding their own capabilities. And then we overlay that with awesome technology. And what happened in the time that I was leading the operations environment, post-COVID, we had this incredible rise of incidents in Australia. We could see what happened in the Russia-Ukraine conflict actually reflected in increasing incidents coming through our environment. We saw many customers come to us after the security of critical infrastructure legislation was announced, say to us, we actually now need to protect our organisations. Many of them were like water utilities or energy utilities, help us protect our OT environments as well as our IT environments. So there's a lot of fear in cyber, right? We have people who are really bright and talented, but every day we ask them to come to work and actually move through that fear barrier and learn something new. We ask them to unwrap a whole new technology, connect it to environment, monitor it, work out how it behaves, and then tune it so that it gives meaningful information. You have to have the kind of environment where people can actually work with technology play with technology and then kind of do the tuning work at the end of all of that. It's quite incredible. And the only way out of it is to continue to leverage the power of the tech. I did notice very high turnover with the people that we, were, we had in our security operations, particularly that tier one area. We would bring people in, we would train them for six weeks before they touched an incident. And then we would shadow them and reverse shadow them until they really understood how the tech works. That's an incredibly expensive process to onboard people. And we would bring them in from service desk areas where they had already incident management and ITIL kind of frameworks. But understanding the tools is really complex. And then we would have tools across one system. We ran an on-prem SIEM environment. We ran a cloud SIEM environment. We ran an external environment around detection and response. And then we also ran a vulnerability management system. And we also ran a threat intelligence environment. And we had to kind of stitch all of that together. So people were always swiveling between all of these different screens. And then we would then ask them to put all of that data into like a service management, service now system. So there's a lot of screens in all of that kind of work and a lot of transferring of data. I think the future, as we see it with the power of AI, to actually bring together 
a seamless kind of dashboard where the threat intelligence is in the heart of the work that happens and to be able to have the guide of AI-powered tools to actually guide analysts in their early days in the role is just so incredibly exciting. As an industry, we can't afford to wait six weeks before someone is able to work the tools to do meaningful cybersecurity work. With the power of the tools that I'm seeing now, we can put someone into a role with AI or co-pilot and they can be productive within days. And then that work can then be supervised by the level twos and level threes. And they can be guided both by the technology and the power of that, but also by their peers. And the work actually, I think, becomes so much more interesting because it's more about the analysis, the trends and things like that. Talking about the stress and wellness and how do we keep our teams resilient in an industry that is known for its demanding and 24-7, 365 nature, what can we do as organisations and as leaders in those organisations to prioritise the well-being of folks that are in cybersecurity and particularly in our SOCs where we're seeing a lot of that burnout? Yeah, so we see the tangible inputs going into a security operations environment. We see the log sources, we see the threat intel, we see all of the reporting that then comes out of it. But what we don't see in security operations is this hidden stress called burnout. And the idea is that there's no easy way to solve this without actually breaking it down even further and looking behind the scenes at work and work design and the tools that we deliver to our people and how do we solve those problems of multiple platforms, multiple tools, swivel chair between screens, long hours, fatigue, and then keeping them safe. One of the things that really concerned me was how do I safely get my people home after they've worked a 12-hour shift, four shifts in a row? And one of those things was we would do fatigue assessments. And I said to people, you will not drive home. We will put you in an Uber after every shift and we will take you home safely to your door. We will ensure that food arrives for you because some of the environments that we built were protected environments. We had to have people on site to meet the requirements of the ISM and the protected delivery that we were doing for federal customers. So we made sure that food actually arrived to them so that they they were well fed. I think also it's the little things like how do we make sure we look after their brains? If their brain is dehydrated, even by about 2%, it will impact their work by about 20%. So just looking after all of those things to do with making sure our people are well hydrated, they have protein and food, they have regular breaks, they're supported by their team, they can ask for help at any point of the day or night, and they've got standard procedures to follow when things happen, and that we then really enable the tech to do the heavy lifting and we structure the work in such a way that their work becomes much more meaningful and insightful because they're doing more of the higher order sort of things around bringing together the insights to prepare the advisories then to go to customers. So look, just building on this theme of the different strategies, tips and tricks on managing mental health and stress in what is a very high stress environment or a very highly demanding environment, Are there any specific strategies you've actually found useful that apply to managed security services? Because obviously you've actually run managed security services over the course of your career. You have a lot of experience in that. So anything specific to MSSPs, do you think? 
One of the challenges is that many of the contracts are actually fixed price contracts and it's quite difficult to vary them. So you're actually working within the confines of a particular budget as well. So the way to really unlock things is actually to start to think about how do we work smarter because we cannot continue to put more and more people on to the growing volume of incidents and alerts coming through from more and more blog sources coming online. So yeah, really enabling the tools is really important. The other thing is making sure that our people have regular breaks. There's some amazing research that's happened by um, a neuroscientist, Andrew Humerman, and he looks at what happens in our brain when we're just focused on screens and what happens to our sense of perspective and judgment if we don't actually step back and broaden our horizon. So he's a really big believer in actually shifting the focus from screens to actually broadening the horizon to look more broadly. And these are some of the techniques that we've used with our team to actually put in place reminders to people to say, hey, it's actually time now to actually go for a walk. It's time to have a a drinks break. It's time to eat and things like that. Because once you're in something, sometimes you actually need someone to ring the alarm and actually say, hey, look, you've been working on that now two hours. I know it's really fascinating, and but you do need to have a health break. And, you know, what's really interesting I've found in, in my work in this field is some of my greatest, most insightful moments have happened when I've been having a shower or when I've been washing dishes. And I've come back to the work and I've been really clear, you know what, I think it's this. And when I share this with people and say, actually, let's actually just uh, step outside the office if it's during the day and let's do a lap around the office, get some fresh air, get a juice and then come back to it. And all of a sudden the energy changes. And that's because the chemistry of the brain has changed with oxygen and all of those sorts of things. And the and the shift in perspective has also changed. And we can then unlock and solve the problem. So understanding that cyber pulls us down these rabbit holes, right? But we need people then to ring the alarms to say, hey, you've been down there now quite a while. Let's bring you back out and let's look at things from a few different perspectives. And let's also allow others to step in and collaborate to help solve the problem. When it comes to that, how do you get your team to take that on board? Because I've got to admit, being one of those people who will dig in and spend four or five hours looking at something, how did you get them to realise that this was important for them to do and get them motivated and engaged in part of this de-stressing and taking a step back? So I like to think about this by actually going back into science Because people in cyber actually like to be informed by evidence-based things. So I would go back and look into the field of neuroscience and actually take insights back to the team. This is what I've been reading. Let's experiment with this and let's see what that does to how our brains work and see if it's actually going to help. So we would just do a whole bunch of experimenting with some of the crazy insights that I read through some of my passion for psychology and, and see if we can actually bridge the two of them together. It was really critical that we focused on this because stress manifests itself differently for everybody. So some people would come to me and say, actually, V, I'm experiencing migraines the complexity of the work I'm trying to solve is so much that it's actually affecting my vision. I'm needing more rest. Others came to me and said, look, I've actually got a stress-related skin issue. Or I had one person in the team actually through the, the two years that I was there actually was diagnosed with cancer. So actually understanding the link between the mind and the body and the organs and how it's all connected is really important. 
And then once we understand the science and we come at it from a really scientific way, we can then actually do what we need to to help ourselves, right? We then stop almost sabotaging ourselves doing great work. We can then say, actually, it makes really good sense for me to drink to eat, to take breaks, to focus on my breathing and to make sure I disconnect from the work. I enjoy skateboarding and surfing. And the reason I've taken up these two sports is it connects me back to my body. When I'm on a skateboard, all I'm thinking about is how the wheels feel when I'm moving and I'm turning and how I'm carving and and just that sensation. I'm 100% in in my body. And if I start thinking about working while I'm skateboarding, I, I risk misinterpreting a curb or, or doing a flip or something like that. So I intentionally have chosen to do sports. Surfing's the other one I really enjoy is just getting out into the environment, diving into the ocean and seeing what that does for my sense of feeling alive. Again, it's a sport that actually takes you back into your body and then you come out of the ocean a different person from when you go in. You can't be angry when you're in the ocean just because of that incredible sense of what it does to you. So sharing all of these sort of insights with my team, I would then find people would start changing the way they were doing some of the things in in their daily life. Some of the tier twos and tier threes, as I bought my skateboard in, they would bring their skateboard or their electric scooter in and we would talk about they were riding to work or they'd bring their bike in. We actually encourage people to actually, let's change the way we arrive at work. Let's actually build in some breaks and let's make it so that people come to work sharing about what they're doing outside of work because then we know that they've actually had a break from the work, which is really important for their mind, for their stress and for their whole kind of nervous system. So they were some of the things that we experimented with. This is really complex. It's really hard to solve. There is no one thing that will work for everyone. But an awareness of the importance of your breath, the importance of taking mindfulness into work. And many people say to me, oh, V, I, I can't do mindfulness. There's no way I can carve out an hour of my day for mindfulness. Well, we would experiment with just doing it for two or three minutes because the thing about the brain is it doesn't know whether it's two or three minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes. It has the same impact. So we would just start experimenting with little bits of just let's take a few breaths out. Let's go for a walk and things like that in little micro doses of it to see how it would change environments. So just doing a bit of a pivot now, we as we think about this very rapid paced technology environment where you basically have innovation at literally the speed of light. There's things being announced, there's product developments, there's industry developments happening every single day and every single week. How do you ensure that your teams, your security teams, security operations and beyond stay up to date and are inspired and motivated to really go after all of that new learning that will help them deliver better outcomes for their customers? So when I think about learning, I think of it in two aspects. There's the professional development And there's the learning around the work that we do, the technical learning, which is really important. But there's also the professional development that we do for us that drives our own personal transformation. And I think both of them are equally important. I do a lot of work, particularly with mentoring women, and I might suggest to them, I think let's put a goal that you might get a security certification, maybe your CISM, which might be a a course of three to six months of kind of fairly intense study. But I'd also balance that with something like the Microsoft Women Rising program. So they actually also then have the empowerment tools that they need. Once they've got that great certification of knowledge, 
they can then also be guided by someone else in in navigating all of the things that come through promotion, asking for a pay rise, negotiating to get your needs met, having difficult conversations, how do you shift uh, non-promotable work amongst the team and all of those other conversations. So I think working with people, both of those are really important because you actually want to not only educate, empower and keep people up to date, you also want to give them the personal skills for them to reach their potential, to understand, and it's combining both of those together that we get careers accelerating. So that's been my experience has been to actually sit down with people. And and this was one of the strategies we did when we had the galloping salaries for our security analysts. We would sit down with them and put a plan together to say, what are you most interested in? Okay, let's map a Microsoft certification or a SAN certification with something else that you're interested in. Let's get you speaking at a conference. Let's get you researching something. Let's get you reaching out to the community with students of cyber or something else that takes them outside of themselves. Because I think in serving others, we also connect back to that great passion and sense of community, which is also really important in this work as well. Just looking at some of that and building upon what what Kenny was saying, just love to understand you're going around, you're doing conferences, you're definitely a force to be reckoned with. And there'll be people going, well, is there some best practices of, of what you did and lessons that you've learned on your own journey that you'd recommend others to do? Yeah, so I'm a huge fan of Brené Brown and just stepping into the arena, right? Don't let fear hold you back from things. So I I really wanted to step into the speaking arena and present at conferences and I was really early in my cyber journey myself and I, I thought to myself, what have I got to offer? What could I possibly share that's unique to my experience that would benefit others? And I had been doing a lot of work with the Lego series play. And I thought, right, I'm going to go to Canberra and present at CyberCon. I'm going to take my 50 kilos of Lego and I'll run a Lego series play for cyber teams. And I will get a whole team of people building threat models and sharing about their superpowers in cyber. So I expected I might get 20 people. I had 60 people come to the first workshop I ran for two hours. And I had this incredible diversity in the people who attended. I had people who were starting brand new into cyber. And I had people who'd been in Interpol and AFP and defence for 20 or 30 years come into the room. I got them all to share what their vision was of cyber and build some threat models together. And then I asked every person in the room to share something they had built to provide insight to others. You could hear a pin drop because people were just so intent on listening to each other. Lego is incredibly creative and it's incredibly democratic in terms of giving everyone a voice. So I just experimented with what have I got to offer that I could give back to this community to make it richer. And then as my career developed, I then started setting myself a challenge. I thought I'd really like to uncover a bit more about ransomware. What's best practice in incident response communications? So I would set myself a goal to research that topic bring together a whole bunch of really interesting research. And then I would have a chat to a mentor. And so I had a couple of great mentors in the organisation that I was working in. And across the road was one of our biggest competitors. So I went to one of the executive directors of CyberCX and I said, I've put a presentation together. I'm quite new in this field. I'm about nine months in. Can I go through my presentation with you? And they said, absolutely. They gave me two hours of their time in their boardroom. We ran through my presentation. They gave me feedback. 
I changed a lot of the content and launched that presentation. And why do I share this? Because this is an incredible field where your competitors are also people who will step in and help you in your career, which is seriously amazing. I couldn't do that in telco. When I worked for Telstra, we actually saw Optus as the competition. We didn't collaborate with them. But in this field, you'll see two cybersecurity companies actually collaborate together to solve the problem and share threat intelligence to actually defend Australia, which is really, really amazing. Then the next thing I was quite interested in was the whole idea of insider threat. We spend a lot of our time looking at external threats. And as I saw so many people leaving roles post-COVID, I thought, what's the impact of this on organisations? As each person leaves the organisation and takes what they think is the information that might help them in their next role, how does that affect data governance? What amount of information is actually leaving organisations through this great resignation? So I researched that. It was absolutely fascinating. And the really interesting thing about Insider Threat is it actually has some really interesting case studies because the rest of cyber, the two things that actually prevent us having a lot of case studies are jurisdiction and attribution. And we spend our whole time kind of wrestling with those two. And we don't occasionally interpol or land an amazing case. And we, we then just start to see who are the faces behind, you know, this incredible destruction of cybercrime that we see. But in inside a threat, because of the power of the tools now, you will actually see cases go through the courts and you can actually read about those case studies. The other thing about Insider Threat is it links us back to human behaviour and stresses. Why do people do what they do is often because of a stress that they've experienced in their work relationships. It might be they've missed a promotion. It might be that they're feeling really disgruntled about a particular decision that was made in the organisation. It might be that they experience some financial stress. So there's a bunch of stresses that we kind of see. And the thing about insider threat is the way to solve that is not only with great tech, but also by enabling people to be sensors to kind of understand your behaviour is slightly different. You're actually working longer hours, you're coming in earlier, you're printing more, your behaviour is really different to how it was last month. Let's have a conversation about that before something happens that is actually going to get someone into a lot of trouble. So that was the next thing I, I decided I would research everything I could about inside a threat. So my guidance to people who are interested in, in stepping forward is look inside at what your experience is, align it with something that you think the industry wants to hear more about, and then do some research and step forward. I promised myself two years ago that if opportunities present, my first response would be yes. I would not spend those hours in my head deliberating whether I was worthy, whether I was accomplished enough, whether I was an expert in a particular field. I would trust that I could step into spaces, I could do the research, and that I, with my experience, would have something to offer in that situation. So for those grafting into cyber, don't step in tentatively. Step in knowing that you bring so many skills from other backgrounds, and this field needs the combination of all of those skills for the work that we're doing. I want to pivot to something you were talking about there where you were talking about insider threats and being able to see people's behaviour changing slightly. And I think that ties in really nicely with what we were talking about when we talk about AI and things like Copilot. Can you see things like AI being able to assist us when it comes to that wellness factor, to being able to use it to improve wellness for our people? Absolutely. The latest dashboards give you 
almost a risk score based on behaviour. So if you can actually track someone's behaviour and actually plot it into a dashboard and you can see over time, over six months, all of these different behaviours, then as a manager, you've got the data then to actually start the conversation with HR to get advice from legal and compliance. And you've also got really, really great forensic detail in the tech, right? It captures all of those events into a dashboard. And I think this problem with Insider Threat is one that doesn't just sit with operations or IT. It's something that actually sits right through that management layer in an organisation. And these tools probably sit in an area around risk and compliance because Insider Threat is exactly that. It's actually being able to adapt to the changing risk of your people in the organisation based on their behaviour. And being able to see that and then based on what you're seeing, actually then start to make predictions around what might happen next across not only the data in the environment, but also as you see the data across environments in GitHub or Google OneDrive or personal email. Once you can start tracking all of that, both within your digital estate and also the larger digital estate an individual has, you then have a much stronger visibility of the size of this problem and how do we now use that knowledge to actually protect the organisation from risk, to prevent sensitive data, customer data, financial data leaving the organisation, causing problems. A couple of weeks ago, we had the Microsoft Ignite conference and there were a number of innovations announced. In fact, there's over 100 product developments and enhancements that were announced. Were there any that from an AI standpoint stood out for you? I'm just so excited about the Security Copilot for its ability to help us address some of the traditional challenges we face in security operations. When I saw that technology, for me, it was a game changer. And the exciting thing about the organisation that I'm in at the moment, Avenard, is that we have been using the Microsoft Copilot within our security operations environment to protect our people at Avenard. So we are an early preview user of the technology. And when I when I um, looked at the work that Greg Peterson and the team were doing and how they were using this technology for threat hunting to reduce the time analysts have to investigate an incident from three hours to 30 minutes, and then the enormous power the technology had to help with incident reporting. For me, it was just like, wow, this is just so exciting. I could barely contain my excitement in terms of what the power of this technology will do for security operations. So yeah, I was super, super excited. And Security Copilot will also help many, many other areas of cyber as well. It'll help with vulnerability management more broadly. It'll help searching on malicious code and all of those kinds of investigative work more broadly that teams do. But I, you know, I think it's just so exciting. And once you've used Copilot, I don't think you can operate in an environment without it. 86% of people who've used Copilot said it helped them improve the quality of their work. 86% said that it reduced the effort they needed to complete tasks and it actually made them more productive. And there was a desire to continue to use Security Copilot in how they were delivering their work. So I think once you put the power of this technology into the hands of the people, everything changes. And then we just have to then redesign how work happens 
For example, you redesign, instead of having playbooks, we have prompt books. We actually then redesign what work looks like. We might need less tier one analysts, but certainly we need more tier two and tier three, making sure that the system's a lot hallucinating, checking the data. And you also need teams occasionally doing the reverse engineering. If security co-pilot says this, how would our team also respond? And do we both get the same answer? If not, let's run through and do further analysis. So yeah, I was super excited. There's one statistic that Charlie and Vasu talked about, which was the rise in cybercrime throughout the world. It just blew my mind. They said the cybercrime economy was $8 trillion. Now, that's the third largest economy behind the US, China, is this drag on the economy called cybercrime, and it's growing at 15%, which is faster than the world's fastest economy, which is India. And they estimate it will get to $10 trillion in a few years. So the sheer size of that problem and when you think what sits behind it with the as-a-service model, this is a huge, huge drag on our economy. The millions of people that are impacted by this, we have to take this time to actually look at the advances in technology and accelerate the work that we're doing in cyber defence. When we think about the learning curve in cybersecurity, you know, cybersecurity, there's a huge domain of knowledge and cybersecurity can get very technical. Do you see security co-pilot playing a meaningful part in uh, lowering the learning curve and perhaps democratizing cybersecurity to a certain extent? Absolutely. I think we can actually put people on an on-ramp so much faster so that they don't actually go through that valley of disillusionment trying to learn a hundred different terms so we can actually bring them up so much faster and we can actually bring people to a point where the knowledge that they have combined with Security Copilot and also the, the knowledge that they can access through their peer group and their level twos and level threes, we can actually bring them to that point so much sooner in their career, which I think is extremely exciting and empowering for people as they enter this field. They don't have to go through that valley of disillusionment of, I just don't know what I'm doing and I, I don't know what I don't know. Now we're just giving people so much more information faster and the decision-making then will get stronger and better and more confident. I always think that with all new technology, there's a test and retest. We have to keep our people across the tier two and tier three layer in security operations to test, to validate, and always be applying that critical thinking. And that's what we pay people to do is to think critically, right? To actually, we pay them to think. So let's let them think rather than spend all of their time playing whack-a-mole on alerts, right? We want them doing that higher level thinking. And we want them then also challenging the tools as well. So yeah, I think it's incredible exciting the point we're at right now. This is an exciting conversation and I know we sat down and spoke a fair amount about AI and, and the conversations that we have just blow out because it's so fascinating. We know the value proposition that Security Copilot or AI is going to bring to the world of cyber. What do you see that's holding us back? There's a great deal of hype around AI so it's important for organisations to approach AI with governance, with training, with a sense of responsibility working with this technology. So I think there's a, a strategy and governance piece that sits within a frame that kind of settles the ball and allows everyone to have a level of understanding about AI. In the organisation, I'm in Avenard, there's 60,000 of us, all of us have to do AI training by the 1st of January. 
And I think the lift of that, putting every person through general AI training really early and anyone who has any capacity right now is learning about AI, is working with the tools, is running workshops with customers to explore the tools. So I think those organisations who step into this early with training, with guardrails, who become early adopters, they will rise through this faster than others. And we'll start to see, I think, a number of organisations starting to separate. Those who adopt an AI-first model early will probably get a lift of efficiency, a lift in innovation through their organisation, which will set themselves up for a trajectory for the next two or three years. Those who hesitate are at risks of things just happening a whole lot slower. Particularly in cyber, I think we are in an arms race. If the adversaries out there are using AI, then in a sense, we are compelled to understand the power of this technology to defend as well, because otherwise it's a really uneven kind of a race, right? It's like when all the wars throughout history changed, you actually have to change your defence based on what's going on in the offensive landscape, or the risks are just so huge, right? So I think particularly in security, the thing I like about the Microsoft Security Copilot is that the data sits within the environment and the data is secure within that environment. So I I think it kind of sits alone. It's not like a chatbot that sits somewhere outside the environment that you then put data into and out of. This sits seamlessly within the environment. And that I think is very different, that your data remains your data. Your data is not used to train the model for other organisations. It's wrapped up. It has all of the privacy and protection layer within that Microsoft stack. So I, I think for that reason, it's absolutely technology worth exploring. It's capability for organisations running their own internal security operations. The biggest area I think for change will be those organisations running large-scale security operations environments across multiple customers. I think the idea that we have to keep up with what attackers are doing and understanding the technology they're using in order to be defensive against it is really important. They only have to succeed once. We've got to block all of the holes. So it's making sure we're blocking as many of those holes as we possibly can. I want to finish up on a pretty simple question. If you could give one piece of advice to someone who's looking at starting in cybersecurity, what would that piece of advice be? To jump in and be all in and don't hesitate. This is an environment that's incredibly diverse. There's an incredible sense of community. The purpose of the work will pull out of you the energy, the drive to learn, to do amazing things. Trust that everyone comes to this work with a set of skills that the rest of the cybersecurity community also need. So my experience has been stepping into this field of meeting so many amazing people, both through Australian Women in Security Network, through Students of Cyber, through many, many industry events, through ASA and Second Thursday Drinks of the Month and all of those kinds of things. There's many, many areas where if you you say yes and then you step into the environment, I would say take a multiple-prong strategy, do some study, Attend networking events, get to know people in the industry and start with some really broad experience, then specialise. That would be my guidance because you don't actually know what you know because you're kind of in the field. Many people say, oh, I would really like to be a red team person or a pen tester. 
and their first role in in cyber defence in a blue team. And they say, this is fascinating. This is amazing. I want, I want to spend the rest of my life kind of in this space. So combine those three things, do some study, connect with people who are already in the industry, talk to them, and then start broad and then navigate from there based on opportunity, based on your talents, based on the opportunities presenting to you. That's how I, I've navigated and that would be my advice to others entering this field to navigate through it. Thank you so very much. This has been amazing. I've absolutely loved every minute of it. And I love the insights you bring from different areas around what we can do better in this industry and how we need to focus on our people. So thank you so very much for being here with us today. You're welcome. You've been listening to Authorised Access, a show about the challenges that businesses face when it comes to cybersecurity. This podcast is brought to you by Microsoft ANZ. Microsoft offers a comprehensive set of end-to-end security solutions that span people, devices, apps, and data. For further information, please visit the website, aka.ms slash authorized access. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Authorized Access, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Daniel Goffredo. I'm Jess Dodson. And I'm Kenny Singh. And we'll be back next episode with more authorised access.